0: Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org.
1: So we, for the last two Bible studies, the monthly Bible studies, we started talking about what we call the dispersion epistles. We started with James, and now we finished James last time, and we have moved on to Peter. So as we get started, when you think of Peter, a little bit of a, two minutes of interaction here, not his teachings, but the events, that stories about Peter, what jumps to mind when we, when we consider events that happened to Peter, what Peter did when he was a, a young disciple? When we think of stories about Peter, what, what comes to mind? Not wanting Christ to wash his feet and then wash everything. What else when we consider other stories about Peter? Brother Ray. He was kind of a an unpolished speaker, orator, just blurted things then After Pentecost, he went he went to college and this was Okay, that's great. Sister Jennifer. Denied Christ. And what happened uh so he denied Christ, denied him 3 times. Luke says, go ahead, Brother Joe. Sure Correct. He got into a, dis- Paul had to take him to task. Exactly. Yep, absolutely. Uh, back to what Sister Jennifer said, just want to finish off a little point there. You recall that when um, Christ, in Luke's account, when the when the rooster crowed the third time, Christ and him locked eyes, which was devastating, I'm sure. What, uh, what else? What about, uh, go ahead. Sure, he and I think that was probably where Joe was going back there, where he had uh, didn't quite get the concept there of, of, of uh, uh, even though he was it was revealed to him he had trouble even though it was revealed to him he taught the church he had trouble with um, accepting that. Right, absolutely, and um, he chopped off an ear when he got uh, he reacted and you remember he chopped off an ear. Uh, he treated the Jews, we talked about that. He treated Jewish converts differently, even after understanding the Gentiles' uh, uh, place uh, in the plan. He denied Christ. Um, when he was told, um, if there's no other hands, I'll just keep going with my list, but feel free to, to Sister Olivia. Okay, okay. I do, I do. And that probably falls along in the same sort of uh, when Christ had mentioned to him that he would suffer a a crucifixion much like him. He was all worried about John. Well, are you sure? Are you sure? What about everybody? Everybody had to be fair. He, at the end there, he he did say John 21. He said, you know what? Come on, guys. Let's just go fishing. That is true. That is true. Yep. So with that in mind, he was one of the pillars of the New Testament church. The first part of Acts, as we know, focuses, and as, as we're going through on the weekly Bible studies with Pastor Adrian, focuses on his and John's ministries, the first part of Acts. We just came off of studying the book of James. You recall that was in the mid to late 40s. 12 to 15 years later, after Christ's crucifixion, James, as we just noted, writes his first epistle before succumbing to persecution. And we, re- we read and studied the book of James, where we talked about the scattering of God's people was not new to New Testament times. It had been happening throughout the pages of biblical history. But God's people, and again, this is taken just reviewing from the first two studies, God's people more often than not seem to be on the move. Sometimes it was self-afflicted inflicted. Sometimes it was God-ordained. But they were seemed to be on the move. The context that we talked about these dispersion epistles, as these letters were being passed around, was the persecution that was going on to the church, to the, the New Testament church from Rome. And we discussed that in the previous messages. Peter now, some 15 to 20 years after James, Came along after James wrote his epistle, is where we pick up Peter's epistle. So consider the persecution and, and what we talked about. What James was writing to the church and how, what what the context and the, the setting that the church was in at the time James was writing his epistle to the the, dis, the dispersion because James also wrote to the to the dispersion. Consider what fifteen to twenty more years of change, what society would have been like that the church would have been involved in. Consider where we were ten years ago. And we would never have thought society would be like this 10 years ago. So now consider 10 to 15 more years from now what society may be like in what's gone on in the last 5 to 10 years. If God allows this to continue, what society is going to be like. That's where we sort of find Peter's writing 15 or so years after James' writing. The churches and and the the setting that the churches amidst all the, the persecution is 15 years worse than what James was writing in. Consider that when Peter wrote in the early 60s, his early to mid 60s, his first epistle, and then mid to late 60s, his last epistle, he would have died somewhere in the 67 to 68 AD, they say. The historians note. Consider that in the the period of the 60s, leading into the early 70s, was the war that the the persecution, the heavy persecution that Rome was was putting upon the Jews. The second temple was going to be destroyed. They would uh, lose Masada in 73 AD. So this was some serious times that Peter was writing to the church and the events that would take place not just during the time he was writing but what he was preparing the church for. And note that Satan at this point was using the Roman Empire not just to besiege Jerusalem but to attempt to eradicate God's people either through martyrdom or through giving up their faith in lieu of preserving this life. As we, and we've talked about that on multiple occasions recently. This was an empire. It wasn't just trying to get, they did see, try to besiege Jerusalem, but this was about being a world ruling empire. So with that all that in mind, the context there, let's go to 1 Peter and talk about, break into this study on Peter. We won't get too far into Peter today. We're going to actually only get through the first chapter or so. But consider the events that we opened up with, talking about these events that are preserved in Scripture. And they were evidence of a passionate man. One cannot deny Peter's passion. We heard him chopping off the ear. We heard, Christ, don't wash my feet. Oh, you need to wash my feet? Never mind, wash all of me. We heard various stories that lead us to understand Peter to be this very passionate man who often, as Brother Ray pointed out, acted before he thought. He was impetuous. He was rash. He wore his emotions on his sleeve. He hated injustice. But he hated injustice when it affected him. He clung to his comfort zones both uh, Brother Bill and Brother Joe talked about, clinging to their comfort zones. He was the one that it was revealed to that the Gentiles were part of the plan. Yet he still had trouble treating Gentiles the same as Jewish converts. So he had trouble. He clung to his comfort zones. Sometimes we can see some of our own uh, uh, habits and idiosyncrasies in some of what Peter did. Passionate, but acting rash, acting impetuous sometimes, being clinging to our own comfort zones, being focused on, Equality as it affects me. Resisting trials and persecutions. He was worried that he was going to have to suffer a fate that maybe his other brothers weren't going to have to suffer. So we go to 1 Peter. What we're going to see is, over the course of time, in the 30 plus years, we're going to see an individual who matured into a magnificent leader. So there's still we're going to see the still the same passion but we're going to see what type of leader Peter was and all the events that was surrounding the church how they de- developed him and how he was expecting the church to to be and to act during this period of, of persecution so when we look at the first introduction there's a lot to read in the introduction here Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ so he's establishing his authority and As an apostle of Jesus Christ, he was one who saw Jesus Christ. He saw his life, he saw his death, he saw his resurrection. So he was a witness. To the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now I forgot my my computer to throw this up on the the, uh, screen. But when we look at, I did uh, pull this up here, the uh, map. Oh, I lost it. Sorry about that. But we, you'll recall when you were here before, the map of Asia Minor. So you have Jerusalem, and then it flows up into Asia Minor, and we got Greece and 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 the Mediterranean Sea over here. And when you when you look at these cities that Paul is referring to here, and probably in your pages of your Bible, you have some of that. You see that these the the dispersion that Paul is referring to are the converts that were living in Asia Minor. Much of the many of the places that Paul started, some of the congregations that Paul started as he when his in his journeys. But to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, the folks that were converts, but living outside of Jerusalem. And when we we'll read that introduction, there's a lot that can be said in a simple introduction. God the Father calls each according to his time frame. In the foreknowledge, and Let's read verse 2 again. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Peter here is expressing the plan of God in a, in a complete sentence. God the Father calls each according to his time frame according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We are made holy through the grace of God and the blood of Jesus Christ. Through nothing we've done, nothing we've earned, nothing we've done of our, own, of our own accord. So God chooses to call us when he calls us. We've been made holy through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and the grace of God. As is evidenced by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we've been given his Holy Spirit at baptism. We then lead, then lead a life of obedience to God. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago leading up to law and grace, the evangelism uh, uh, seminars, and we, and we continue to see God's word here talk about law and grace. We've been given grace, we've been, we've been sanctified by God through his grace to a life of obedience in Christ. They two go hand in hand. It is not law or grace, it is law and grace, and the two go hand in hand. We then lead a life, as I said, of obedience to God by following in Christ's footsteps. Why open a letter this way? Why talk to these dispersed people in the midst of an extremely persecuted time? Why talk this way in an introduction? He wants to tell them, don't forget who you are. In spite of all that's going on around you, do not forget who you are. You were called by the God, the Father. You were sanctified by the blood of His Son. You were given His Holy Spirit to lead a life of obedience. Don't forget who you are. That is a special. You are a special person. Not due to anything you've done, but God has sought to reach down to call you into His truth. Don't forget it, no matter what is going on around you. No matter where you are, where you've been forced to flee, no matter where you're living outside of Jerusalem, Don't forget who you are. You are called by the Father, sanctified by his Son, to a life of obedience through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. God chose you, and do not forget that. Instantly here, we see a mature leader of God's people. Not the impetuous person that we talked about, or the one who was worried about his own skin, or the one who was worried about what others would think of him. We see a mature leader. This is a much different Peter than we are exposed to in the Gospels. One who has grown from his rash and impulsive nature. There's still the passion for God, but it is properly directed. And we see a pillar of God whose focus is no longer worried about his life, but ensuring that he maintains his focus on eternal life in the kingdom of God. I believe Deacon Jan spoke a couple of years back on how Peter's life in the Gospels influenced his writings. And we see that when we go walk through Peter's writings, how they, how they are affected through his experience in walking with Christ through the, the period of, of Christ's ministry on this earth and then the early New Testament church. This is very clear when we walk through his writings here, that he is matured. He's a strong leader. He has not lost his passion, but his impetuousness has been reined in. And he's properly focused on what needs to be. And it is no longer about this life. If he has to go through what he has to go through, bring it on. My focus is on making sure I don't lose sight of the kingdom of God. And we see that here all nicely wrapped up in this little introduction. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy... Has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's take a look at that little passage. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy, again, always referring back to the grace and mercy of God, has begotten us again to a living hope. Interesting, this word begotten, and again, I'm not a Greek scholar, but just studying Strong's, this is not the word ganao from John 6. This is the word anagenao, anagenao. Strong's here indicates that this refers to having one's mind changed and conformed to following the will of another. So here he expands upon his early review of this life that we read about in the introduction, that they were called to, but reminds them that they are putting on the mind of Christ. They are to continually, regardless of their surroundings, be putting on the mind of Christ and becoming conformed to that mind, which they would be very familiar with Paul's writings and teachings. They were... In Asia Minor, they would have been very familiar with Paul's teachings and to the Philippians about putting on the mind of Christ. And as we consider this word anaganao, the prefix ana in Greek, according to my, my studies, means upward. And it's the same prefix that is added to the front of krino to become Anacrino when we consider that. Again, I'm not, I'm not a, a, a Greek scholar, and, if, and uh, perhaps in the Q&A session, I know uh, Pastor Adrian um, has, has studied Greek. But I found it interesting that this word is anaganao. And when you attach the word ana to krino, we remember we've, so we've studied this, the word for judging. The, the word krino has to do with final judgment or decree, which in this life is beyond our, our, our pay grade, as I like to say. And it turns into one of more a self-examination which really helps us focus our minds on becoming like the mind of Christ, that our minds should be pointing upward and trying to put on the mind of Christ. So here we have crino that becomes anacrino. It turns the word judge into self-examination. Here anaganao is much more than just begotten, but having your minds changed to conforming to the will of Christ. And we see here, that what he's talking about is he has begotten us again, again, called us out, but having our minds changed to this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And We see this, this phrase here again, this hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And again, we're going to go into a lot of this uh, discussion on the Feast of Trumpets. That's what the, the sermon is going to be about, the hope of the resurrection. But... Let's just touch on it here a little bit as as we see Peter introducing this concept here in his first epistle. Our hope is centered on the resurrection. That's what Peter is saying here. So always remember the context here, that they are in the midst of this wicked persecution from the, the Roman Empire, and they're scattered throughout Asia Minor to the ones he's specifically writing to. So always remember that context. Here he's trying to remind them that their hope is in the resurrection. Their hope is in the resurrection. Why is our hope centered on the resurrection? If we absolutely have full confidence that God can and will resurrect us, which Peter saw as a witness, he was a witness to that. If we have full confidence that God can and will resurrect us, we will never give up that opportunity no matter what is put in front of us. That's the context that Peter's writing in. Let's... Hold your place there. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And look at this, the impact of understanding why the resurrection is the center of our hope. It's it's what our hope revolves around, the resurrection. And And believing in this resurrection. And having full confidence in that. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If this is the teaching of the word of God, if this is what is being taught, that Christ has been resurrected from the dead, and I'm telling you because I saw it, how can some of you say there there is no resurrection? But if there is no resurrection of the dead... So for argument's sake, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and our faith is empty. Yes, we and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up. If, in fact, the dead do not rise. So you're sitting here giving your lives to God. If, if there is no resurrection, then Christ isn't risen. If Christ isn't risen, then everything we preach about is empty. So there's no sense even being here. So by the fact that you're being here means that you have full, it requires a full confidence and 100% faith that there is a resurrection, that God will raise us from the dead because he raised his son Christ from the dead. So we can see here, and we'll go into that a little bit on uh, the Feast of Trumpets, a lot of bit on the Feast of Trumpets, quite frankly. But our hope is centered on the resurrection. And that's why Peter, in his first epistle, can say what he says. Before we go back to Peter, I just want to, let's drop down to verse 19. And again, our hope is centered on the resurrection because it gives us full confidence that they can, anyone can do to us in this life what they can. What they can. And our hope remains in our, resurrected, in our resurrection. And we will not give up that opportunity. So, again, referring back to Paul's writing here in, in the 15th chapter, let's go to verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. That's, a, that's worded a little confusing. It means this, and we could paraphrase it to this. If our hope in Christ is only for this life, if the hope that we have in Christ is just for this life, We are the most pitiable of all people. We believe in Christ, and we believe only to save our skin in this life. We are the saddest of all people. We're worse than people who have no idea that Christ is. They believe in this life because that's all they have. They they try to preserve their physical life because they have no idea that there's a resurrection. That's sad. If we believe in this life only to save our skin today, that's the worst. That is the saddest. We believe in the resurrection because we have a hope for the future. And do what you can, do what you will in this life. We will do our best to survive this life. But if it means making a choice between God and this life, we were talking about it beforehand, we choose. In fact, we've chosen now, there is no choice. If our life, if our belief in Christ and the resurrection is only for this life, to preserve this life we are the most pitiable let's go back to 1st Peter so we can see here as Peter begins his letter and reminding them amidst all this persecution that they're going through that their hope is in the resurrection this is, this is impactful there's a, there's a reason why he's focusing here on the resurrection to give them hope verse 6 continues in this you greatly rejoice though now for a little while If need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen you, whom, having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith and the salvation of your souls." We see here Paul talking about trials for a short time. Remember the context. They're in the midst of this persecution by the Roman Empire. And we know that over the course of time, empires change. Our our lives are, while we may suffer in this life, it is only for a short time, which is why he's pointing them to the resurrection. That is eternal life. We don't need to worry about that. If we suffer persecution or trial or, or hardship in this life, in the grand scheme of things, when we are, when we lay hold of eternal life and we live forever, that little bit of time that we spend in this life suffering is is but a short time, as Peter words it here. Then he continues, as we read, talking to them about the glory, the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. So remember here, Peter in this context is trying to exhort them into never giving up their faith. That's the context that he's writing it. Never having given up their faith. He's reminding them, you've never seen him. You're taking our word for it. I've seen him. I believe. Let's go back to, holding your place, let's go back to John 20. Back when Peter was less mature and a little more rash than he is today, than he was at the time of his writing. John 20. where Christ appears to the disciples eight days after his first appearance, this time with Thomas on hand. Verse 27, Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And then Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. But Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Peter was reminding them that they were in this group. They were in this group that had a complete and total faith that Jesus Christ lived and died and was resurrected. They'd never seen it. Guess what? We're all in that same boat. We're in that same group of people that believe without ever having seen. Peter is reminding them here what a special Blessing that is, to be put in a position to believe without ever having to be seen. That is a group of blessed people. Reminding them all the way as as we continue to remind them here, don't forget who you are. Right back to the introduction you've been called by God, saved by and sanctified by His by His grace through the blood of His Son to a life of obedience. Obedience at all costs. Whatever else happens, we obey God despite what is going around you now, whether it be a peaceful existence, as we are living relatively peaceful now, or if it becomes much more a life of hardship as they were living in those days. Continue to remind them, don't forget who you are, regardless of everything that's going on around you, around them. They and we are a part of that group that believes without ever having seen. Don't forget what a special blessing that is. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you Through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. The prophets wrote about these things in the Hebrew Scriptures. Why did they write those things in the Hebrew Scriptures? To support those who would need to suffer for Christ's sake, never having seen him, but yet be asked to believe. Think of the prophets who wrote about this. David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Malachi, all wrote about the suffering Christ in some form or another. And prophesied, wrote about this grace that would become available through Jesus Christ. And again, as Peter writes, it wasn't for them. It was actually for us. It was for the people that were suffering in the 60s AD. It was for the church as it would progress through the church era to today, when, when we exist, they were ministering not to themselves, but to us, so they could report the things which needed to be reported through the gospel. And here we see again, amazingly, things which angels desire to look into. Paul here, Paul taught that angels were still learning of God's plan as it was being revealed. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3. Verse 8. To me. To him less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, to make all see what is the fellowship of this mystery. Again, the same thing that Peter is trying to remind the readers of his epistle of. Which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers In the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in Him. So, our endurance and place in God's plan, we can go back to, to Peter. Our endurance and place in God's plan was helped along by the messages of the prophets and by the angels. They are our assistants in this life the prophets through the message, the angels through serving us when we need. Service and to protect us, and, but not because of who we are, but because of God's greatness. This is some serious territory we are treading in. We have been called by God, saved, sanctified by the blood of His Son through nothing we did to earn it, to being given His Holy Spirit so that we can change and put on the mind of Christ. And we are the recipients of the work the prophets did. We're the recipients of the service of the angels who have been created to serve us. This is some serious, special, blessed, blessed territory we are walking in, and we cannot give it up for some hardship that we're going through in this life. That is where Peter is starting to, to really base his first letter to them on, really reminding them who they are. And all that has gone into getting the plan of God to the to this point, to this point. Peter's asking them, and then by extension us, do we fully comprehend the impact of the truth of God? How far back God's plan goes? And to worry about this life for a short time, some of the hardships that they may have been going through? We are of all people the most pitiable if we worry about this life in lieu of that. So as he's talking here, he then proceeds into his next part of his his letter. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance but as he who called you to be, is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Again, remember the context that we that we keep referring to. It's important to remember that. The first part here talks about girding up your loins. If you remember last time we showed a slide of a Roman soldier with his tunic down, and girding up the loins involved wrapping, taking up some of his his loose cloth and wrapping it up underneath his legs. And tying it off so that it came up here and he was ready for action. Girding up the loins of your mind. In spite, Paul is, or Peter here is reminding them that understanding the context of where they are. Understanding the history that has gone into the plan of God to bring them to where they are here. And all that is surrounding them with the, pers- the persecution that is surrounding them. Therefore, understanding all of that. All the work of the prophets. All the service of the angels. All the 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 grace of God. Gird up the loins of your mind and prepare for battle. Because it will be a battle. Because Satan does not want us to, to succeed. Gird up the loins of your mind. Tie up all the loose ends and be completely center focused on your battle to make it to the kingdom. Don't be worried about the persecution going on around you. Be of one mind. Don't have any loose ends. Be completely ready for the battle of the mind. Why? Because the prize is the resurrection. The prize is eternal life with God the Father and his Son. Gird up your loins, your mind, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. With all the the distractions going on around that could cause you to, to wonder, is this really worth it? This is going to hurt. Some of this is going to be painful. Gird up your minds for that battle, because the prize is eternal life. The prize is the hope of the resurrection. But as he who called you, verse 15, is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Interesting that Peter quotes from the Torah. Without looking, I had to look. So if you have to look, don't don't worry that you have to look. I had to look this morning. Do we know where this is taken from? This is quoted from. It's interesting to know where this is quoted from. Leviticus 11. Leviticus 11. What is Leviticus 11? The food chapter. Let's go back to Leviticus 11. Leviticus 11. Verse 44 and 45. It's interesting as we... Note here, I just wanted to point this out. That being holy, when it was originally written in the Torah, was written at the end of the law that guided food consumption, clean and unclean meats. Verse 44 and 45. For I am the Lord your God. And before you look there, you can just check for yourselves, back to verse 1, all the way through. This is all clean and unclean meats. For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore you shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. It is a sin to eat unclean meat, to knowingly and willfully eat unclean meat. And I didn't write it. We simply report what the Creator has written. We simply report with the Creator's part of being holy is following His law. And His law, as we talked about back in the evangelism campaign, is really just, it's His expectations. He has, he has created us, He has created this world, He sets the rules to how to live. And part of that is following His law. And really interesting that that comes out of something as simple and yet controversial as the food laws. Let's go back to First Peter. And if you call on the Father, who, we're in verse 17, if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Conduct Yourselves throughout of your your tabernacling time here on this earth with fear. Let's look at two consider two scriptures. Hold your place there. Let's go to Luke twelve. Luke twelve. Luke twelve, verse four. And I say to you. My friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do to you. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast you into Gehenna. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Matthew words it as fear him who can kill the, the soul and the body. Don't fear those that can only take, pick this. Fear him who can take your eternal life from you. Who can kill your, your body and your soul. Now let's go to 1 John 4. 1 John 4. Verse 18. There is no fear in love. There is no fear in love, but perfect love, agape, casts out fear because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Fear him who can kill the soul and the body. Work your way towards agape, and once you've attained agape, there's no place for fear. There are two Again, I'm not a Greek scholar, so I'm open to discussion here. There are two Greek words used in Scripture for fear. The first one is theosibia. Theosibia. And it refers to a fear of God, a, a a piety or reverence for God. You can find an example of that in 1 Timothy 2. It talks about in a general statement about the fear of God. The other Greek word for fear is phobos, where we get our word phobia. It indicates a more passionate fear, sometimes, sometimes to the point of panic or terror. So Theosibia refers to just the the general reverence for God. The word phobia is a more passionate fear. When taken to an extreme, it can be panic or terror. So when we consider these scriptures here, we're looking at the word phobos, phobos, which is a more passionate fear. But then we read 1 John, and we see what we don't need to fear. We don't need to fear God in a terror or panic-filled way. When we are properly aligned with his will, there is nothing to fear. When we are, have the mind of Christ, when we are working towards that perfection, when we are trying to put on agape, the agape love of God, the mind of Christ. We don't need to fear him in a panic or terror-filled way. There's a right and a, a guiding fear of what could happen if we turn our backs on him. What could happen if we turn our backs on him. And it should propel us to stay in line with God, so there is a fear that we that that is healthy. Of knowing what could happen if we turn our backs, if we say, you know what, this 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 persecution is too much. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna look out for number one here, right here right now. There's a a fear at that point that we need to fear that God what God can do what is under His purview. But as long as we are aligned with God and we are working our best towards repentance and perfection, toward putting on this mind of Christ, perfect love casts out that fear. There's no need to fear if we're aligned with God. The fear comes in when we're not aligned with God. Continuing, verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. And again, pointing them back to this plan of God that goes all the way back, where their forefathers, again, were misled and and focused on their traditions over what God taught them, or over what God spoke to them about. But with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish and without spot, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This plan goes all the way back. The prophets talked about it. The Hebrew scriptures talk about it. The angels were here to serve us, to help us through. This plan goes all the way back. You are a blessed people. You are a chosen people. Do not forget who you are. Do not forget why you are here. And don't forget the precious blood of Christ that was spilled so you could sit here, so you could be here and partake of this. And remember that this goes all the way back. This wasn't something that was dreamt up of 60 years here before he wrote. This goes all the way back. You'll recall, you don't need to turn there, you can write down Revelation 13, 8, slain from the foundation of the world. This was foreordained, as, as Peter reminds them, from the foundation of the world. Let's do look at Genesis 3 and see that it goes all the way back in the Hebrew Scriptures as well. This wasn't just something that John wrote in Revelation to say that it was from the foundation of the world. We see it right here in Genesis. Genesis 3. And verse 15. Talking to the adversary and i will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel a, a prophecy in from the, the beginning of genesis pointing to the time that christ would be crucified on our behalf that for a short time he would suffer but ultimately he would crush the head of the adversary Reminding them, this goes all the way back through the pages of your Hebrew scriptures. And not to forget who they were. Again, verse 21, who through him believe in God. So we believe in Christ, we have faith in his resurrection, and through him we believe in God, the Father, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. And if he did it to Christ, he'd do it for us. That is our hope it was done they believe it so have have hope and faith that whatever you're suffering in this life is but for a small time and there's so much there's so much more reason to suffer through these things and to stay true remembering who we are and what was sacrificed for us and where we where our part in this plan so be holy So how to be holy? Peter here talks about being holy and why they need to be holy. He now goes into how to be holy. If being holy is is so important, which it is, let's remind them how to be holy. Since you, verse 22, have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers away; grass withers away, and its flower falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in the sincere love of the brethren, and again, a reminder of this calling, calling. Repentance, receipt of the Holy Spirit, obedience to God, leading to transformation of your mind and your behavior. This is part of our time here on this earth. From the point of calling, we repent. We receive the we receive uh, forgiveness. We receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is then given to us to help us become like, put on the mind of Christ, to try to incorporate agape, become like God. And it is made manifest through how we treat each other. Recalling again how scattered they were. How reliant they were upon each other. That it is where we sit in our walk with God is made manifest in how we treat each other. And not just the people in Cappadocia, how they treat the people in Cappadocia. How they treat everybody in the body of Christ. Everybody in the body of Christ is subject to these same trials, tribulations, and how we treat one another is important. And it shows God where we are in our journey. And we, we, that is manifested today in the various groups that are part of the body of Christ. We're all part of the body of Christ. And we are, if someone in my, in, on my street that goes to another church and needs something, doesn't matter that they never darken the doors of CGI. If they are part of the body of Christ, I need to be there for them. I need to be there for them, regardless of where they send their tithes, regardless of who they give their affiliation to. That will show God where my heart is, where I am on the growth spectrum of agape, and how how I respect and love all of the brethren, all the brethren in the body of Christ. And we see here this understanding and this forgiveness leads to obedience. There are works that are required after the receipt of, of God's grace. Since you've purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Recall Peter's fervency as a young man, where he was worried about Peter. Here he's saying, you know what, don't worry about yourself anymore. Worry about the body of Christ. Be fervent for everybody else. Don't worry about yourself. How can he write that? Because he was on the other side. He worried about Peter. Now he was worried about John. Now he was worried about Mark. And all of the other, the other, the other Ap- Apollos, Barnabas. He was worried about his brethren. The word of God provides teaching that affects our behavior. And that behavior is made known to God or how we treat each other. Again, we see the word anaganao there in verse 23, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And then he quotes from Isaiah 40. All flesh is as grass and all the glory of man as the flowers of the grass. The grass withers and and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. The context of that prophecy is from Isaiah 40 is the one who came to prepare the way for the Lord, which was John the Baptist. But again, pointing out that the word of the Lord endures forever. God is eternal, his word is eternal, and his word drives behavior and how we treat the brethren. Verse The last part of verse 25. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. This, was, this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. This is something they have heard and they know. Interesting something for you to consider. This is just to consider. This is not doctrinal. It's just a consideration. This The word here for word. Now this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you is not logos it is rima now you'll recall pastor adrian speaking to us a few years ago on the various nuances of greek philosophy and how the greeks plato led by plato and aristotle led the way in greeks becoming known for their very robust language they were writers and they developed a language that was that was full and meaningful peter here uses the word rima not logos this is just to consider. Just a thought. When you consider, and when I looked up the word "rema" and did some studying on, on its, its, its origin, as Plato and Aristotle taught people how to write, there were three basic parts to Greek writing. There was the anoma, which was a noun. There was the rema, which was the verb, and there was the logos, which is the sentence. This is. I studied that this week and found it this week. This is just for you to consider. We often see the word logos used. Here he uses rima. I find it intriguing that he used the action word here, rima. This is the word which was preached to you, which which by the gospel was preached to you. Because the importance here is action. The word here, rather than just logos, which was the, the full sentence, he was focusing them on the action. The verbs, because our our walk in this life requires action, requires us to 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 as we as we live this gospel, it requires active living, it requires loving the brethren. it requires being following God's law, it requires being true to God. It is not a passive life that we've been called to; it is a active life. Now, the word rima might mean nothing. I might just be reading something into it. But as I consider the various words for word he specifically used rema which is the active choice of the which is the the active part in a greek sentence god's ways require active participation in the gospel on our part god's instructions to be holy requires action requires our, us to actively continue to change actively put on the mind of christ actively remember where we were not to be brought down and, and, and succumbed to, to trials and tribulations and persecution and to put on the mind of Christ, manifested not in how we sit quietly in our rooms and don't sin, but actively how we treat the brethren. This is an active life we have been called to. Even in persecution, even in the midst of trial, Paul is to, Peter is telling them, don't change who you are. Don't forget everything you've learned up to this point everything that the prophets taught is for now. When the times get tough, when we may be here, when they were about to face the loss of the temple, the loss of, of, of Masada to, lo- to lose their land, this is when it counts. This is when it counts. It's, it's easy now. You know what? It's, it's easy now to see Joe and Mary join us and, and treat them well and, and love them. You know what? When times are tough, what how are we going to treat brethren from other groups when that is when we find out when god finds out where our head, where our hearts are when we don't see them as united brethren that should never it, it should never come to mind as as brethren we go back to and i recall reading this back in the 50s and the 60s there were white brethren and black brethren i don't see white and black anymore we have We have exorcised that from our vocabulary. We are brethren. We don't see skin color. We cannot see organizational color either when it comes to loving the brethren. They are brethren. There's no, I don't see anything else in here about defining different levels of brethren. I see brethren. In the same way we exercised that in the 50s and the 60s, we need to exercise that today. And that's how God, and especially in light of persecution, especially in light when we're all in this together trying to get to the same place. It is especially important for God to see how we treat each other now. And we'll just conclude here as Peter finishes his thought in what we call chapter 2. Now this is the word, this is the act of word by which the gospel was preached to you. Therefore... Knowing all of this, be reminded of all of this, lay aside all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. There's no room for that, especially in times of trouble. There's no room for worrying about the self in times of trouble. As newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. What a mature, well grounded, passionate leader Peter has become. He is no longer worried about Peter. He's no longer worried that, you know what, I may have to suffer crucifixion, really? I hope Bill has to go through what I gotta go through. I hope Adrian has to go through what I gotta go through. I hope Becca does. I I, I don't wanna be the only one stuck trying to do this by myself. If I gotta suffer like this, these guys better be in on this with me. No. You know what? I'm not worried about this life. Bring it on. As long as I'm active here, as we've talked about, God can and will preserve us as long as we're being actively helpful for him. But if he asks us to go through something that Peter's going through, Peter's reminding them that 30 years of watching this, this this life means nothing. And when we consider these messages to the diaspora, messages to these Persecuted people that had to leave their homes, and and go out from from around Jerusalem and, and head out. We these letters from James and Peter are so much more meaningful, and as we again see where the world changing around us and preparing, as we look forward to the Feast of Trumpets in 37 days, and we are so focused on the seventh trumpet, we know there is a whole lot of bad stuff that comes with the seals and the first six trumpets. And we cannot, we cannot for that short of time succumb to what Peter is encouraging and exhorting. These, the readers of of his first letter not to succumb to. Because our focus is on the kingdom. So we'll continue this next time with uh, the next time we have an opportunity to study the, to do a Bible study here with Peter's writings and see how it continues. Peter will continue to exhort God's people into passionately enduring tribulation, because he knew, what he knew what he was talking about. He had lived it and he understood it. So we do have, we do take time for Q and A for uh, those who uh, uh, who have never been to one of our studies. We do take time for question and answer. So please. If there are any questions, we also do have after, uh, in the the fellowship time after the service, we also do have a a roundtable discussion and and after-sermon discussion where we can also address questions from the study.
0: Pastor Adrian. Great study. Thanks very much uh, for focusing us on the the resurrection and uh, being faithful through through trial. What was the verse... um, with the begeto from above. The begeto from above. Uh, anaganao? Oh, anaganao. Uh, that was uh, verse, three.
1: Uh, verse 3, and then again in uh, verse
0: 23. It's interesting. You just had me looking at it. So uh, you're right. The preposition ana is up, and they translate it here again. So it's conceived again, but really... What it's really saying is conceived from above, which matches John 3, where Christ says in John 3, verse 7, marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again. The word born is ganeo, and what's translated again is anothen, which is anathen. Okay. So it really is anathen there. Here he's emphasizing place. So it's really being born from above. Which has now gotten me thinking about verse 5. Where he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. I've always translated or interpreted water to mean baptism. Unless we're baptized and we receive the Holy Spirit. But this term, or this preposition, Anna meaning from above, would seem to indicate, you know, when we have, when when Jennifer was pregnant with our children, we talk about her water breaking, and then the child is born. So the first water here seems to be where he says in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. So that which is born of water is flesh. And then you also have to be born of the Spirit. That which is born from above is of the Spirit. So when you go back now to 1 Peter 23, where he says, being born again, anaganeo, it's really being conceived again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed mm-hmm. by the word of God. So I think that word anna is worth studying mm-hmm. uh, with mm-hmm. the notion that it's up from above. Absolutely. I agree. Maybe we can talk about that.
1: Yeah.
2: Right. Yeah, The uh, in first first John there, when he talks about... Uh, Perfect love casts out fear. Uh, that perfect love is from above too, isn't it? Uh, via the Holy Spirit, and and wouldn't that make us uh, not fear uh, what's going to happen to us? Like
1: you were saying, you know, uh, bring it on. Absolutely. Wouldn't
2: that Wouldn't that help, like? And
1: and I think there's a scripture that says uh, he's even going to give us the words to say at
3: that time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, Again, what Peter's reminding them in, in all that context, though. Is they need to be focused on God's will and not. And um, it's easy now for us to sit around here and talk about that. Um, not necessarily so easy uh, when they're going when they're going through what they're going through. So, uh, I, and that's why we need to work on perfecting agape within us or working towards perfection, uh, so that when the time comes, um,
0: it, it is an easy decision. I think it's a very important point. In various places around the world, Egypt, Ethiopia, Somalia, uh, Christians are being hunted down. Uh, they're being burned alive. Uh, they're being subjected to all forms of torture uh, by the Muslim initiative. And I think that here, you know, Satan's acting through them today. He was acting through Rome in Paul's day. And it's like in that context, what sense does it make to become a Christian? Because if you become a Christian, you'll be hunted down and tortured. So if in this life only we have hope in Christ, then the only thing we're signing up for is persecution. So if that's all there is, then we're of all men most miserable. That's, that's a very hard scripture to understand, that's a, living say, in North yeah. America with all the comforts that we have. It's, we've got to put it in a context where Christians are being hunted down and tortured as, as less than animals, which is beginning to happen all over the world, and which is being invited to North America and the Western
4: nations. So I like that added
1: color to that, yeah.
4: Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I was just uh, trying to find a scripture here, but I'll, I'll talk conceptually to what Ray was mentioning, and I think it's an interesting point, in that um, the element of life is that we are born in the flesh. Uh, as Adrian pointed out, um, you know, John, in uh, his report of the conversation between Nicodemus and Christ, was very biological. The, the whole orientation there was not about uh, you know your come to Jesus moment. It really was Jesus trying to instruct Nicodemus, this Pharisee, of the life after and the mechanics associated with it, and the actual rebirthing process. And that's, that was the page Nicodemus was really on, and it's obvious as you go through the conversation. But with that being said, what underscores this, and, and you brought it out, Peter did, that is, and you brought out his words in a correct way, Murray, wrote real well done, is that we need to really be thankful for, for what we have, because we're all born into the flesh under bondage. We're born under the bondage of death. Each and every one of us know we're going to die. We're doomed. We are doomed. This life, now that we're alive, we've got to worry about death. I mean, think about it. Anybody that's not baptized, anybody that doesn't have God in their life, as uh, what are, what's her, I always forget her name, uh, is that all there is, that song.
2: Peggy <laughs> Lee. Peggy Lee. <laughs> mm-hmm. you
4: know? I mean, this is it. If you if you don't have God in your life, there's no more extension. There's no more addition. It's chapter, book, verse over upon death. You hit the dirt, bye-bye. Whereas with Christ, and you're pointing out a real good point, as Peter does, um, and Adrian brought it to light, and Ray, I think you're bouncing on it, is that Christ gives us the ticket to be free from the bondage. So to your point, Murray, we got to get our faith to the level where we don't fear death. That's it. That's true freedom. That's true liberty when you don't fear death. And as a matter of fact, in a a life well lived, you know, God be thanked and praised if we should be so blessed to live 80 or 70. But if we live 80 and some have lived 90, like my mother-in-law, all the more power to us. Let's welcome it. It's true. And it's, be thankful. Uh, true happiness. Too. Yeah, that's true it's happiness. True. To live a yeah. life where you're liberated from the worry, the anxiety, the associated fear of going to sleep. That is true freedom in Christ. And the only way to, to have that true
1: freedom is to believe 100% in the resurrection. And that,
2: That's right. That is just excellent. That's... I didn't know you're old enough to re- remember Peggy Lee, but anyway, that's that's I'm that Peggy that, Lee? that yeah. Oh, he does, he does. Yeah. Well, Bill and I are the same that's age. Yeah, anybody. yeah. <laughs> uh, just that's the same as the saying goes to people out of the world: live, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow you die, and that's what they do because they don't know what we've been blessed to know, and and that's why uh, once you study the Bible too, one of the my favorite scriptures is my day of death is much better than my day of birth because if I make it when I wake up, I'm going to see Christ. What a, what a blessing! And and the and the other one is that the last enemy to be defeated is death. And we've we already don't worry about death, but for the world, they're going to be very surprised when they all know about what we do—the resurrection. Right. <laughs>
1: And it is interesting that Paul, when Paul reached that point in his life where he wasn't worried about death, his conclusion was, "God still needs me to do something. That's why I'm still alive. God has preserved my life. Therefore, it must be because He wants me to to still be working for Him." So,
0: I, I think the sort of next level for us is not to worry about the manner of death, right? Because Satan has uh, some really bizarre ways of killing God's people. And, and Christ is telling us, don't be afraid of people who can only kill the body. He doesn't go into detail as to how they can kill the body. But we have to get to that point where you know, death is one thing. The manner of death is another. And we need to not fear that. And
1: quite frankly, Satan wants to snatch the kingdom away from us. So if we, don't, if we are at a certain level where we don't fear death he's just going to keep pushing it until we give it up. So what I fear might be less than what you fear, or what you fear might be less than what I fear. Uh, and he's just is going to do his utmost to find that level. Right. And when our vision of the resurrection is perfectly clear, we have no level. There's no level he can he, there's nothing he can get to that would get a, that would uh, make us make that choice. But his his role is to find that to find if we have that level, and our our job is to make sure we we never have that level.
3: Thanks, Murray. That was an excellent study, and uh, I really like uh, the point that you brought up when you went back to John twenty and you talked about Thomas, and then you know Thomas needing to examine Jesus, right, and then saying, "Blessed are those who haven't seen." And believe? Well, I, I I find that that passage there is so good for us because what it's actually saying is not that Thomas did anything wrong by not believing, but what he was asking for is, I want to see the evidence. Show me the evidence, which is what is done for a jury. They are presented with the evidence. They examine the evidence. So that's what John, um, uh, Thomas did. He examined the evidence and he said, yes, you are my Lord and my God. That's written down for a testimony for everybody who doesn't believe. But Thomas is the witness who said, yes, it's real. Believe it. So that, that's an awesome. That's awesome a really good
1: passage. That's a really good point. And yeah, I like exactly. how you put that. Because that, uh, quite often we'll read that account with Thomas and Thomas will sort of be, uh, castigated a little bit for off. He, he didn't believe. He, Thomas believed, and we all um, we all come to a, a belief at some point through various ways. Some are a little easier. Some some take a little more or a little more uh, evidence, as you like to put it. And yeah, that's an excellent point that Tom. That's Thomas saw the, the nail holes. That that was the point. It wasn't the fact that he had lack of faith.
0: He saw the nail holes. I enjoyed what you brought out um, with Leviticus 11. And I'm just wondering, 1 Peter 14, 1 Peter 1, 14, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which has called you holy, so be holy in all manner of conduct. Because it's written, be holy, for I am holy. Are you indicating there that the former lusts are to do with the food that they're eating? No, not at all. No? Um uh,
1: it could be part and parcel of it I mean uh, i
0: read that before, and i thought um,
1: it it, i just I just pointed out that the be holy comes from uh, that, but um, you know what uh, for you, it might be uh, meat um, I never ate pork i didn 't know i didn 't know uh, but I know people who grew up loving pork, and it is a sacrifice to give that up for everyone has uh, everyone has uh, lust. We're all human beings. There's, there's certain things that that we would love to do as human beings that we are saying we are sacrificing to say, God, I'm not going to do that. In some cases, it's clean and unclean meats. In other cases, lust of the eyes, pride of flesh. Of the eyes, lust. Uh, you can help me out. Pride of life. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and pride of life. Uh, so not, not necessarily, but not necessarily no either for sure. But the point was, being holy includes. Uh, obeying the food laws because that's exactly where that's exactly where it comes from i
4: i i i agree i think it's all part of the whole scheme you know i think it's you throw that in throw anything else in there you know that's contrary to god and it's all part of that the lust of the eyes and murray said lust of the flesh but going back to the resurrection and what olivia is mentioning as well i think it's it's really important for all of us who haven't weren't there at the time when it happened to recognize the fact that that's a major premise that our whole faith is predicated on in that Jesus Christ's post-life after the resurrection was indeed witnessed and verified, validated, authenticated by over 500 people, we're told there in 1 Corinthians 15, along with, uh, of course, the original disciples slash apostles and in particular In particular, uh, Jesus going to visit his brother James. He called him out because James was one of those, uh, as we read in the Gospels, who said, Jesus, you're beside yourself. You're nuts. You know, what are you doing? And then mockingly, they uh, encouraged him to go down to the feast. You want to be well known? We'll go down to the feast. You know, down there in John 7 where he's talking about uh, uh, his brother going down there. So they, they were, you know, real sarcastic. They had an attitude toward the fact of whether or not he was really who he said he was. And after that... His resurrection, I mean, you, you, you're seeing something now that is supernatural. It's sci-fi. I mean, you are in a different dimension here with this being in our dimension disappearing, reappearing, and putting, I get it, putting my fingers in his holes. If I were Thomas, my middle name's Thomas, by the way. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, I get that that would be a validating moment. But I'll tell you what would be really validating for me to begin with. When he popped in the room and he came and the doors were shut. Because the Bible says the doors were shut, you know, I mean, and he pops in the room. And I mean, that in itself would be eye-popping to begin with. And then he pops and goes away again without going through the door. He didn't open the door again. He just disappears. So this resurrection thing and, and where I was going to go with this here in First Peter, where you were, Murray, uh, is really important uh, point in that. In verse 3, it says, uh, Christ, with according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a lively hope. That's a hope that is proactive. It's, it's a uh, an active, like you were mentioning before in the other word. Uh, this, too, is a lively hope. I'm, I am so convinced that I am motivated. My, wife, my life is motivated by the fact that I know there's more to life than just this. This is just the beginning. Wait till I where do I really get my wheels on the ground? Because I'm just getting started in this flesh. So this resurrection whole idea, uh, as Peter told us and as you so eloquently uh, explained today, uh, it's an important premise, an important doctrine, an important reality in our Christian walk that we really need to let resonate with us so that uh, we get it 2020 because it's mm-hmm. a key. It's a key to being freed from the bondage of death. <laughs>
0: Which I think your point is absolutely bang on, and uh, we have the Pope protecting Islam and saying that it's a religion of peace, and we mustn't speak bad of it. And the heart of the Koran, it it destroys this faith. Christ did; he was not crucified, he was not resurrected. So, so there is no way that we can approve of the Koran when it when when Paul wrote that if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. So the very foundation of our faith is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And to see the Pope supporting and protecting and authorizing Islam, uh, this is crazy. It's what sets our faith apart from everything, is the belief in the
1: death, res- life, death, and resurrection of Christ.
2: The point that uh, Brother Adrian brought up, too, about that we should be ready for the worst, of uh, we can't imagine what the people in uh, Somalia are doing, and it just brought to mind that I... Had a granddaughter Lauren who went over. She's in the it was when she was at university. She went over to help build uh, schools for these kids, and she became quite friends, good friends with a girl about the name, uh, age of uh, uh, our young people here. And uh, quietly, she said one night, she said, uh, "Do you know uh, Jesus?" And uh, Lauren said, y- "Yes, I- I'm a Christian." And she said, "Ooh." I'm afraid to say that here. The girl was absolutely frightened to admit that she was a Christian. And when Lauren came back and told me, I thought, how easy we have it. My neighbor doesn't believe in Christ, but I'm not afraid to tell him what I do or where I go on the, on, the, on Saturday. But uh, that's so important. How will we do when that comes and uh, confronts us? Are we going to be, absolutely sure of the resurrection and say do your do your worst as uh, murray said but also this was just a tremendous bible study uh, murray
1: and i guess it goes back to i'll get to Shaq in one second um i guess it goes back to why peter just didn't recirculate james it was, It's something that needs to continually be talked about because it's it's easy now to theoretically talk about this and yeah we're not going to we're not going to deny christ uh but Rather than just recirculate James, Peter rewrote it, and Jude rewrote it, and everybody's just that was. But everyone's going to keep. We're going to keep talking about it, and I think it's important that we continue to talk about it, so that as we, um, it may never come in our lifetime. But you know what? It may come in their lifetime. It may come in our lifetime. But if not, it come in their lifetime. So um, when if if it comes not in our lifetime, but theirs, thirty or forty, fifty years, they go, man, I re- I remember my parents talking about. It. I remember my church family kept talking about this.
4: Uh, going back to verse 18 where it deals with the traditions Mm -hmm. of the fathers Um, how do we reconcile that with 2 Thessalonians 2 verse
3: 15
4: where Paul is telling us to hold fast the traditions and so there were traditions that Paul was having at that time in Thessalonica and then Peter's having it here so obviously we know that traditions don't lead to salvation but there was something there that uh, Paul was trying to bring across
1: so I, th- I think in First Peter, he talks about your aimless conduct received by traditions from your fathers. Um, so uh, we, all, we know that there were certain things that, that they did. In vain, in vain they worshipped me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Um, there are, are traditions. We have a tradition that we celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. It's also a law of God. So that tradition we've adopted as our tradition because it is a law of God. Um the Jews fasted on Tuesdays and Fridays. Nice, good, but not a requirement. Um and don't and it's above our our pay grade to condemn you because I do it but you don't do it because it's not in the law in the law here. So there are traditions that we have as traditions because they're from the law. There are also traditions that we have made up that while sometimes worthy uh, we can't use uh, against against each other. And in this case here, he's talking about that they were aimless. So he, again, he's reminding them to be front and center with the will of God. And some of our traditions uh, simply detract us from the will of God.
0: Second Thessalonians 2, specifically is speaking of Jewish traditions and traditions in 1 Peter 1, is speaking of traditions handed down by your fathers, so it's not clear like what those specific traditions are. Right.
4: right. <laughs> and also to Adrian's point, uh, same word used in first, same word used uh, in Second Thessalonians that Adrian just referenced. Traditions is um, uh, translated over in uh, First Corinthians, uh, First Corinthians eleven uh chapter uh, verse two first corinthians eleven verse two and uh there it is translated um ordinances same word hmm. jewish traditions uh it talks here in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 11. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. And again, that's the same word, traditions, in uh, 2 Thessalonians.
1: So we'll, uh, you know what? We'll wrap it up now. Uh, there will be time in the uh, the fellowship hour after uh, the service to uh, ask more questions if there are some. It's 2:24 uh, now. Why don't we we'll start services at 3? Does that sound about right? We'll have a 36-minute break, and then we'll uh, reconvene at 3 for the service. Ah, it's hope for you,
2: yeah, hopefully Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. Who like comes on and you're talking.